And one of the biggest ones right now for many is, where is God? It's a good question, but I'm not sure it's the right question. I feel the better question to get the answer that you really need is, who is God? I feel that if you knew who God was, you would know where God is. If you knew that he was omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, if you knew he was a friend that stick at closest than a brother, if you knew he would never leave you nor forsake you, if you knew he was your very present help in trouble, if you knew he goes before you, if you knew he made the crooked ways straight, then you would know he's right here beside you, in the midst of it all, with you. You would know that he's your defender and your protector and your deliverer, your healer, your provider, your shield, your strength, your fortress, your high tower. He's your very present help in times of trouble. Right now, in the midst of it all, and you would know that he is for you and that he's not against you. I think that right now we'd be better served to know who is God than where is God. If we truly knew who he was, then we'd pursue him. We would inquire of him. And then we would know what to do in times like these. Every time David needed direction, every time David needed answers, he inquired of God. Because God, David knew he had the answers. And how did he know that? Because he knew God. And how did he know God so well? He pursued him. He was a man after God's own heart. In his toughest times, he trusted God to protect him and to direct him. And tonight, we're going to see God at work in one of David's toughest battles of his life. In the midst of his trouble, he didn't ask God, where are you? He asked God, what should I do? He didn't spend time wondering where he was at. He knew where he was at. He just needed God to direct him, so he pursued him. So who is God? If I went around this room, I feel I would get a few different answers and a few different perspectives. And why is that? Because your answer or perspective of who God is is going to be drawn from your relationship with him. How well you know him will determine who you believe he is. Come on, somebody. Tonight, I'm going to start out a little bit teachy, then I'm going to move to be a little bit more preachy. But I want to talk about who God is. I want to start with one name in particular. That name names him, and that is Jehovah. God always reveals who he is to his people through personal relationships, through encounters with you. When God wants to reveal something about himself to you, he does it personally as a self-revealing God, Jehovah. And he often reveals a lot about himself to his people, which is why there's so many combination names in scripture that have the name Jehovah in front of them. And there's a significant reason for that. God wants to show himself strong on your behalf as Jehovah God Almighty in the midst of our troubles. Jehovah is another name for God that identifies who he is. Jehovah is the most frequently used name for God in the Old Testament. It's used 6,823 times. It's God's favorite name for himself. So if you would turn to Exodus chapter 3, if you will, and let's get into this. Moses is being sent to Pharaoh to tell him to let God's people go, who had been held in bondage for 400 years. He was being sent by God after Moses had an encounter with a burning bush. Moses had left Egypt after murdering a man, and he went to the desert to live, to hide out. At this point, Moses has been running actually from Pharaoh and the Egyptians for nearly 40 years. But God shows up in the middle of his desert and tells Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses is like, well, God, 
if I go tell them what you say, they're going to look at me and they're going to ask me who sent you. Like who died and made me king? They're going to want to know by whose authority am I exercising? After all, Pharaoh is the king. They're not going to listen to me or care what I say. They're going to want to know who sent me. And when they ask me, God, what do I tell them? Well, in verse 14 of Exodus 3, God says, tell them I am who I am. Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. He ends verse 15 saying, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Now, what kind of name is that? I am who I am. I am has sent you. Well, in the Hebrew language, I am is made up of four consonants. There is a Y, an H, a W, and an H. And to this date, nobody knows how to pronounce this word. When God said I am in the Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H. That was the name he gave. He tells Moses, you can tell them that Y-H-W-H sent you. Then he says it a second time. Y-H-W-H, I am who I am, I am has sent you. Now, this name is important, not only because of the many times it's used, but this name is important because God is telling you his name and who he is. So sacred was the name because the God declared it in his own name. It came straight from God's mouth. So sacred was the name that the Jews would not even try to speak it because for one, they didn't know how to pronounce it. And two, they were afraid they would misspeak it. Because this name was viewed as the highest expression of the name of God because God had said it. And these four letters are called the Tetragrammaton. It was the holy designation of who God was. When the scribes were writing or copying the Bible, they would come to that name. They would read over that word when they had copied it. They would not try to pronounce it. They would just copy it. For fear of saying it wrong, it was sacred. So later when it came to helping us pronounce it, some vowels were added to it to help us in pronouncing it in a way that would not mispronounce what God had declared to Moses. By adding some vowels, it gave us the word Yahweh. So when you hear Yahweh, it was originally just Y-H-W-H. And then when it was flipped over to English, it became the word Jehovah. So in Exodus 3, it's Y-H-W-H, then adding vowels, it's Yahweh. Then the English, it became Jehovah. So when we hear the name Jehovah, we're referring to Yahweh. How do you know when you're reading your Bible, you're reading the word Yahweh opposed to Elohim or some other name of God? I will mention in a bit, because when you're reading your Bibles, you'll see the word Yahweh or Jehovah written in all capital letters, such as even the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all in capital letters here in chapter three. And like in verse 16, when you read the word Lord, all capital letters, it's describing him as Jehovah, it's describing him as Yahweh. The word Elohim for God is God's power name. Elohim means the God who creates. The word Jehovah Yahweh is then therefore God's personal name, a big difference. When I say God, but I'm referring to the Lord, all caps, I'm referring to God in his personal name. When I talk about Elohim, another reference word for God, the God who creates, I'm talking about his power. But when I talk about as Jehovah, I'm talking about his character. Elohim creates he's, creates, he's powerful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Jehovah is the God who relates to his creation personally. Church, God is a personal God. He is relational. You can believe in Elohim, his power, his creation, but still not know Jehovah personally. Come on, somebody. 
Plenty of people believe in a God that creates, but plenty of people don't believe in Jehovah as a personal God. Therefore, they have no relationships with God. There are four concepts in these four consonants. He says, I am that I am. This tells us that God is a person. He says, I am. He exists as a person. He reveals to this to Moses. That's important because that means we don't live in an impersonable universe. See, evolution puts us in an impersonable universe, meaning we're just subject to the forces of the universal atmosphere, making us subject to things that have no life in them. So God is telling Moses, I am a person. So God is a person who exists, not just a force that moves. Actually, God is a triune God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity. He is a person means that he has emotion and he has intellect and will, but he is self-existent person, unlike mankind. We are dependent upon him, created by him. Nobody in this room can say, I am that I am. All you can say is I am, I exist. He told Moses, just don't tell them I am, tell them I am that I am, meaning I exist within me. In other words, nothing outside of me contributes to my existence. His self-existence also indicates his self-sufficiency. God is the only true independent person in the universe because his being, he's being is self-regenerating, which then reveals to us he's eternal. The reason we are here on earth are not eternal is because we are dependent to exist. But because he's independent, he can generate his own self in the dimension in which he lives. He does not have to go outside himself to exist. He's everlasting. And in his eternality, he's equally immutable. Immutability speaks to the changelessness of God, that he does not change in his essence. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet with us humans, things are forever changing. God doesn't go through that process. He is still who he is because I am never steps out of the present time. So now let's go back to chapter three, verse one. Here's Moses. He's in the desert. He's tending to Jethro's sheep. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a burning bush. He sees this bush is on fire, steadily burning, yet it doesn't burn up. Moses is astonished by it, thinking this can't be right. Bible says when he starts to walk away from it, the Lord, Yahweh, speaks to him, calls him by name, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. The Lord says, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. You see, wherever God's presence is, it's holy. Now, why is that? Because of who he is. I'm telling you, when his presence is in the room, the surrounding atmosphere of his presence becomes holy and our surroundings are enthroned with his glory. Come on, somebody knows what I'm talking about. That's why we ought to be more reverent of this place when his presence appears than we are sometimes. When he is here, this isn't just some fancy metal building where we should come in and flop down in a chair and do our duty of service and practice attendance, not when his presence is here because it fills the atmosphere and this place becomes holy ground and his glory surrounds us and we shouldn't be sitting down. If anything, we should be falling down. Where is the reverence of his presence? So many times we leave this place never knowing he was here. Now it's at this place through this fire, through this encounter with God, through this supernatural experience that Moses has a new revelation of who God is. And what he's able to do, encounters with God. 
We too must have encounters with God because they reveal to us who he is. My encounters with God are what revealed to me who he is and rooted me in my faith. If we could only understand the value of encountering God and entering into his presence, if we could only understand the value of having a personable relationship with a personable God, it's here through this fire, God unveils a plan for Moses' life, something he never dreamed he could do. Church, I declare to you, we need the fire of the Holy Ghost in this room. Revealing to us God's will for our lives, we need to encounter his holy presence. In an encounter with God, I was called to preach. Never dreamed I would have, never dreamed I could have when he called me. And I used some of the same excuses, excuses that Moses used. I questioned God's choice for my life, but here I am, not because of me, but because of his plan for me. You must see this here. The value of this experience that Moses had with God. You must see that whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God will show up in the midst of them. Even if you're in a desert, you're all alone, running away. Even if you're in trouble, even if you're hiding out, even if you're in a fire, you can ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if you're in a lion's den, God will reveal himself to you. God is a personal God. Do you know God personally? You can. The reason we don't know God personally is Jehovah we're too distracted. We got time for everything but him. Sadly, he pursues us, but we don't often pursue him. Men, when you meet a girl, you want to know everything about her. And you go all out just to find out how you pursue her to the point of creating a relationship with her that will reveal who she really is to you. And this is what happened to Moses when he pursued God. In chapter 33, Moses says, I want to know more than your name. I want to know all about you. I want to know you personally. Have we got any God chasers in this room tonight? Wait a minute. Didn't he ask God that in chapter three, who he was? And God said, I am that I am. Yes. But that one encounter wasn't enough for Moses. Just to know his name wasn't enough for Moses. It caused Moses to want to know him even more. So he pursued him. Here it is in chapter 33. Because of his pursuit, God introduced himself to him through a personal encounter. And Moses was not satisfied with one encounter, with just an introduction to God, neither should we be. He wanted more. He wanted to know more about him than just his name. He said, Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D, show me your glory. And God does. He hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and he passes by Moses and Moses is only able to see his hinder part. It was God's glory revealing himself to him that day. If we'll seek him, he will reveal himself to us. He is Jehovah God Almighty, a personable God. And what happened after Moses saw God's glory? He grabbed a pen and he began to write. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses wrote the book of Genesis and he wasn't even alive when God did those things. So how's that? Because God can show you stuff you've never seen before when he reveals himself to you. There's so much more of God than we know. Do you know of him or do you know him? Do you want to know him personally? You can and I've come to tell you, the only way you'll really know him is to let him reveal himself to you. David talks about the names of God often as well. In Psalms chapter 8, David says, O Lord, our Lord, 
or to put in the names of God for you. He says, oh, Jehovah, our Adonai. I'm sure many of you would agree with me that names are important. Names provide for us a point of identification. That's why if I say pastor, you know who I'm talking about. Names separate us. They point us out. Can you imagine having six kids and you named every single one of them John? That'd be tough. Anybody who knows you, I can assure you, if they really know you, now I'm not just talking about if they have an acquaintance with you. I'm talking about if they really know you, they know you by name. And the reason they know you so well is because of the relationship that they have with you. They've had more than one encounter with you. They know more about you than just your name. And attached to your name are attributes of you and your characteristics. Your name is a gateway to who you are. When a man falls madly in love with a woman, ask her to marry him. She's not only agreeing to marry him, she's also agreeing to change her name as well to signify that now they're one. Their name declares who they belong to. The reason she also agrees to change her name is because what she has heard or seen over whatever period of time she has spent with this man. Their personal relationship gives her the idea of a better future with this person and that to change her name from her existing name to his is to benefit her. Now, if you take all this in, there's over 800 names for God or compound relationships, therefore, contained in Scripture. And the reason God wants to give us all these different names is so that you can get a different perspective of who God really is. He declares he is, I am. I am whatever you have need of. I will supply all your need according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the reason we need the different perspective is one name, just the name God, doesn't fully explain him. Knowing all that God is, simply to say God, doesn't fully say all that he is in terms of all the nuances that make up that overarching term that we say when we say God. Folks, there's a lot of gods. The Muslims have a God. But there's only one Jehovah God Almighty, one true living God, one triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So just to say you know God or have a God, doesn't describe who you're talking about. How we describe him by name describes what God we're talking about and who we believe he is. What God does, he wants us to know him relationally through the multiplicity of all of his names. For example, you need to know him as healer. You need to know him as a deliverer. You need to know him as your provider. You need to know him as your redeemer. Depending on what your relationship is with him, his name varies, like my name. And your name varies based upon the relationship that people have with us. To some, I'm dad. To some, I'm a friend. To someone, I'm an uncle. To someone else, I'm a brother. To someone else, I'm a pastor. To someone else, I'm a cousin. Depending on the relationship with me and with every name they know me by, they have experienced me in a different attribute or a characteristic to bring them to the knowledge of who I really am. My friends don't know me like my wife does, but they do know something about me. So it is with knowing God. How you know him depends on the relationship that you have with him. By the experiences you've been having through him and with him. If you don't have much of a relationship with him, you'll never truly know who he is or what he's capable of doing for you and through you. And this is what's wrong with our nation today. Too many people really don't know who God is and what he's capable of. But they're fixing to find out who the God we serve is. They're fixing to find out he is a God who will not be mocked. God's names are critical to our understanding of his multidimensional nature. 
God wants us to come face to face with his, with his significance and his substance. He wants us to have encounters with him, to enter into the holies of holies and receive a revelation of who he really is. To where? The more I seek him, the more I find him. To the more I find him, the more I know him. To the more I know him, the more I love him. You want to know who God is? Draw nigh to God. God will draw nigh to you and show you. Every encounter I've had with the God has revealed to me another nature of God. And I have ultimately found out that God is love. He loved me when I wasn't lovable. He loved me when I thought no one did. He loved me in spite of me, in spite of how I treated him. Come on, somebody. Just talking about him, you can feel his presence. And because of his love, he's been many things to me. You have a relationship with God, and you will know him by his names. It was Moses who God had chosen to lead the people. He loved the Israelites out of 400 years of bondage. Moses, though, having that encounter with God through the fire of a burning bush, Moses learned something about who God was that day, that he's real, that he's an all-consuming fire, that he cares for his people, that he will deliver his people, that God believed in him enough to use him, an old stuttering man. But before he goes to Pharaoh as commanded, he asked God, when I go to see your people, they're going to want to know who sent me. So who do I say? And God answers him by unveiling one of the greatest names he tells him. I am that I am. My purpose with this teaching is to reintroduce you to God for the first time by his name. But my goal is not merely for us to be able to pronounce his names. My goal is for us to understand the nature of God behind all of his names. Because the names have meaning to the attribute or the characteristics of God that you need to become familiar with in order to understand truly who God is. In other words, his names show up in our situations of our lives, as it did so many times throughout the Bible. And to be able to know which name relates to your situation gives you insight into the nature of God that you want to address the situation you're facing. If you're sick, his name to you is Jehovah Rapha, our healer. If you're broke and hungry, he's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. If you're in chaos, he's Jehovah Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Hallelujah. See, the Bible regularly talks about calling upon the name above all names. David illustrates the value of this in a situation that he faced. When as a young boy facing a nine foot six inch giant that every adult warrior had done cowered down to because of strength and size, David finds himself in a situation totally overwhelmed for a young boy. But due to his already previous encounters with God, he knew he wasn't alone. He knew God was for him and not against him. He didn't ask God, where are you? Even though he was standing up at, to a nine foot six inch giant who wanted to kill him and his family. David is just this little Rudy shrimp, folks. Goliath is a giant of a man. And he insults David with his boldness. Goliath was with a roaring, intimidating voice, yells at David, Am I a dog that you bring a stick and slingshot to fight me? Why, I'm going to feed you to the birds, he tells David. David answers to him accordingly. First Samuel is instructive. Because David says, you come to me with a sword and a spear in your hand, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God. He didn't just say God. He said Lord God. Lord meaning the God overall. There was something about that name that David knew. 
He knew that at the very mention of his name, his God would show up and show himself strong on his behalf. How did he know that? Because he had done it before. When he fought a lion, God was there. When he fought a bear, God was there. He knew God is his very present help in times of trouble. He knew that no weapon formed against him shall prosper. He didn't just know God. He knew God as a friend that sticked closer than a brother. There was something about his name that overrode the huge situation that David was in. He knew that if God be for me, who could be against me? He knew Jehovah would protect him. He's the same God that will override the situations you find yourself in as well. He's the same God who's going to show up sooner or later and override the situations of our nation. He's the same God who override the evil of this nation. If we'll call upon his name. See, if you just knew God was there in every situation you face, if this nation just knew God, the only way you'll learn to know him is how David learned it by relationship, by encounters, by pursuing him, spending time with God, and you will know him, not just know of him. If you knew God was in every situation you faced, you'd be like David, or you, and you wouldn't cower down either. You'd stand in full confidence that this battle's not mine. This battle is the Lord's. But if you don't know his name, it's hard to use a name that you don't know. Being in an emergency situation, you're going to call out to your wife, your husband, your kids, but what if you're surrounded by no one you know? Are you just going to say, hey, you? What do our kids do when hurt or scared or in trouble? They cry out, mommy, daddy. They know us by name and by the characteristics of our name. They know we'll protect them or we'll die trying. You be on a plane going down. What are you going to holler when you don't know his name? God's name is like a key that unlocks a treasure trove of security. I love Proverbs 18, which says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to, into it, and they are saved. The name of the Lord, just saying the name of the Lord. Demons tremble at the very mention of his name. Mountains bow down. He says his name is a strong tower. It's a fortified place. It's a safe place. Psalms 11, verse 9 says, Awesome is his name. What I'm trying to tell somebody is God has a name for every situation and that in every situation, he is God. If you'll call upon his name, there's always an attribute or a characteristic of God that you learn about him in your trials. That's why through your adversities and through your tragedies, you always come out of them by him. And through the process, you learn something about God you never knew. You learn he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You learn he strengthens you when you have none. He brings peace. He's your refuge. You learn that you can hide and abide in the wings of the Almighty. You learn that he's patient. You learn that he's long-suffering, that he's gentle, that he's meek, that he came as a lamb of church. He's fixing to come back as a lion. And when you discover his name and who he really is, you discover the power, the potency, the privilege, the productivity of that name. You discover who God is in a deeper perspective. David says in Psalms 8, how majestic is your name? He doesn't just say, I know your name. He says, your name is excellent. Your name is majestic. It's full of splendor and glory. Now, please notice David says in verse two, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. He's describing different walks of faith. In other words, God doesn't tell everybody his name. 
He says, people who are going to know his name, and by know his name, he means experience his name, not just able to recite it or spell it. He says, the people who will know his names are babes and infants. In other words, he restricts the use of his names to people who are dependent on him. You've got to get this. What characterizes you as a baby is dependency. Babies need mommies. Babies need daddies to feed them, clothe them, protect them, care for them, teach them. So therefore, they are dependent. So he's saying, the ones who are dependent on me will know me. And what are infants and babes? Characteristically known as children. So he says, those who are dependent on me are my children, and my names will my children know. Jesus said this in his prayer in Matthew 11. He prayed, I thank you, Father, that you've not revealed yourself to the proud, to the independent, to the intellectual, to the PhDs and the narcissists, but you revealed yourself to babes, your children. So there must be a dependency on God to be his children. And that dependency translates to a personal relationship with God. Lord, have mercy. I hope we're getting this. If you get this, get ready to enter into a deeper realm of knowing who God is. You will learn it through encounters with him. Attending church, sitting on a pew is not an encounter with God. It's nothing more than making an appearance before the public's eye, expressing you have an interest in God, but it does not display you have a relationship with God. But getting on your knees in his presence, humbly before him and spending time with him will cause you to have an encounter with him. Our altar experiences are often too often based upon a need from him instead of just spending time with him. However, it's true. Bringing your need before this altar will always lead to an encounter with him and you'll know of his power to heal and to restore you. But that can't be the only reason you ever want to encounter God. A continued use of God's time in that fashion will only lead you to knowing the blessing and not the blesser. Knowing the healing and not the healer. Knowing his provisions, but not the provider. There's got to be times of encountering God simply because you want to know God. You want to know more than his hands. You want to see his face. And this can't be only done with encounters of God in here, in this place. You can encounter him anywhere at any time. You can encounter him in your bedroom. You can encounter him in the car, at Walmart, at the scene of an accident, at a gravesite, and even in a firefight in Fallujah. God is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I said all of this to put the value of knowing God into perspective and how you can know God. But now, I want to bring forth the value of knowing God today. We are in unprecedented times that were prophesied to come. Perilous times, signaling the last days are approaching. And who is God is a better question to know the answer to than where is God. Asking where is God is speculative doubt of his presence. If you know God, you know right where he's at, and you will know he knows right where you're at. God knows where we're at, church, as a nation. He had a plan for this long before this time ever came. He's not caught off guard. He's not wringing his hands. And if you know God, neither should you be either. See, the church is caught in a survival mode when it ought to be caught in a revival mode. If we don't stop, start pursuing God, We'll never get our stuff back. And worse than that, we'll raise up a generation that does not know God. 
It's time to quit asking God, where is he at? And worry about where we are at with God. And I'm here to say to the church that I hear God saying, pursue. I'll make my point right here. It can be found in the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. David's been running from Saul. Saul's been wanting to kill him. He finally decides to go into the Philistine territory, hoping to find refuge from Saul. While there, David even chooses to hide, hide his men and even join to fight with the Philistines. As David arrives with his men, the intent of enjoying the, joining the Philistines to attack Saul and his army. But the Philistines' leaders, because of David's heritage with Israel, they say, we don't want him. We don't trust you, David. We don't want you with us. Just go on back home. So David grabs his men. He goes back home to Ziglag. And upon returning, they find that while they were gone, that the Amalekites had invaded their villages and burned it to the ground with fire. Not only that, but they'd taken all the women and all the children, all the sons and all the daughters into captivity. Everything they owned had been taken or destroyed by fire. And they all begin to weep. The Bible says they weeped until they couldn't weep no more. And then the men wanting to blame someone, they begin to blame David. While David too has lost everything that he had and loved too as well. Which leads me to the scripture text for this night. 1 Samuel 38, David said, during a time when the enemy had come and took the most valuable things from his people, their families, both women and children, and David, upon wondering what to do, how to react to this evil attack of his enemies, he asked the Lord for direction. In Samuel 1, 30 and 8, David says, David inquired. In other words, he asked, he prayed, he sought, he pursued the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this truth? Shall I overtake them? And the Bible says, And the Lord answered him. And the Lord said to David, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. And I hear the Lord saying to the people of this nation that has been overtaken by the evil actions of our enemies, let this be a year of pursuit, taking back what the enemy has stolen from God's people. A year of inquiring of him for direction and a year of pursuing your enemy. And with me on your side, God declares to us, surely we will overtake them and without fail, we will recover everything that the enemy has stolen from us. If you want your stuff back, this should be a year of pursuing the Lord, praying, asking, and seeking God. And the Lord says that in your pursuit of me, you will once again find the passion for the things of God. If you will seek me while I may be found, because to know me is to love me. Many people have lost some things this year in the midst of all the chaos, and they're wondering what to do. You lost some things you've loved, and you want the enemy, what the enemy has stolen back from them. You've lost your peace. You've lost your security. You've lost your joy, your health, your finances. You want it back. Then if you do, then you must pursue. And pursue means to follow. And God is saying, pursue me, follow me. And I will help you pursue your enemy and take back what the enemy has stolen from you. Church, we've been attacked. And it's time with the Lord's help to go to the enemy's camp and take back what he stole. If you want to know what to do in times like these, when David was spent 
when he was hurt, when he was rejected, when he was fearful, when he was robbed, when he felt he had nothing left, he inquired the Lord. In doing so, God told him to pursue his enemy. Go get your stuff, David, and you won't fail doing it. Because if I be for you, who can be against you? You want to know what God is doing? He's shaking the church. As in like waking up a sleeping child. Wake up, get up, arise and shine. Because the enemy is attacking the church. He's coming after us, church. Men, you better step up. Because he's coming after your women and your children and everything that you love. I have found out he always comes after what I love the most on this earth, which is my family. And I want them back. I want my son back in the house of the Lord. The enemy wants to divide the church, divide and conquer is his strategy. But what he don't get is what lies ahead for him. If we become united instead of divided, then they can shake us, they can scare us, they can persecute us, but no matter how far they drive us, or no matter how far they scatter us, God will unite us into something greater than they have ever faced before. We're not going to go out weak. We're going to go out strong. We're a part of the tribe of Judah, and they're fixing to hear the lion of Judah roar. The real church is the church of Zion. This isn't the first time that they've come against the church. Remember the incident with Stephen. They stoned him in an effort to silence them and scattered us. But instead of destroying us, we grew stronger. And God is saying, fear not, for I am with you, even to the ends of the earth that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Not even the gates of hell shall prevail against the church. That includes every demon in hell. They lost the keys to the kingdom a long time ago. And there's never been a more important time than now to know who God is. If we don't begin to pursue God and become God chasers, we're going to have generations who do not know God. And that's your children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren. And we're in a place of unprecedented times in our nation where we claim we don't know what to do. When our religious freedoms are under attack like never before, and we have a cancel culture movement that wants to cancel out God. Be prepared, it's coming. It's been historical figures. Next, it'll be religious symbols. And then it will be you and I. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. It's one thing if they never know who Abraham Lincoln is. But church is going to be another if they don't ever know who God is. They want to promote their many gods, but there's only one true God. But we'll never know him if we don't pursue him. When we lose our relationship and dependence upon God, we lose hope for our nation. A nation that was built upon biblical principles. The attack has begun. And for those who really don't know God, it doesn't seem like too much of an issue for them. But for those who truly know God, we know the value he is to our society and to our lives. And it's time for the church to break out into a pursuit of God like never before. Every time David needed direction, every time David needed answers, he inquired, he pursued God because he knew he had the answers. In his toughest times, he trusted God to protect and direct him. Church, Pentecost is to be the implosion of God's spirit into this chaotic world. It is to be the combustible spiritual force that pierces the darkness. 
igniting a flame that will set this nation back on fire for God, launching a spiritual revolution. Like on the day of Pentecost, where those filled and full of the Holy Ghost went running out into the streets of their city, declaring that this is that that the prophet Joel spoke of. And like any fire, it'll attract crowds of people that are curious and they're desperate, causing souls to be added to the church daily. It's time for fervency to be ignited in the body of Christ. Men and women ought to be fervently praying, praying in the spirit with moanings and groanings that cannot be uttered, praying the will of the Father, praying effectual fervent prayers. God, I want my children back. God, I want my family back. God, I want my church back. I want my finances back. I want my marriage back. I want back everything that the enemy has stole from me. And God is saying, now is the time to pursue me. And I will help you pursue the enemy and take back what the enemy has stolen. We're not going down weak. We're not going down anemic church. It might look like we're losing, but I hear a rumble in the mulberry trees. I see a perfect storm brewing, but I see the perfect one right in the midst of it all, showing up and showing himself strong on our behalf. I know that 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 God is in control. The heathen will rage and the weak will fall. But in spite of it all, the church is going to arise and shine and our enemy is going to be scattered. I like for the musicians if they would come. Seek him while he may be found, while he's near. Something's got to change, church. I'm going to ask somebody to do something, a few of y'all. Would you come and stand in the altar? Mike, would you stand in the altar? Cheryl, would you come and stand in the altar and find you a spot? Greg, would you stand in the altar and find you a spot? Brother Lemons, would you stand in the altar? Would you go to the altar? Brother Denny, would you go to the altar? Let me get way back in here deep. Bob, would you go to the altar? Russell Kernut, would you go to the altar? People getting nervous now. Nikki, would you go to the altar? Mike Tidwell, would you go to the altar? Mickey, would you go to the altar? Would you come? Larry Teeters, would you come? Would you come to the altar? Find you a spot. Let's find you a spot. Lily, would you come to the altar? Find you a spot. Girls, it's fine. Brother Marvin, would you come to the altar? Sophie, would you come to the altar? Would you come to the altar? Brooks, would you come to the altar? Chuck, would you come to the altar? Would you come to the altar, James? Andrew, would you come to the altar? 
Would you stand, please?